Amen. Well, there's some information that you don't want the senior pastor to find out um, sometimes, and especially if it's the fact that I found out it was somebody's birthday today. And uh, it's a significant birthday, but it's Eileen Sturk's birthday. And so let's sing happy birthday to Eileen. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Eileen. Happy birthday to you. There you go. That doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes I just I just feel it. I need to sing happy birthday. And so we do wish you a happy birthday and uh, so glad that you're here with us today. And for those of you online too, it's good to have you tuning in. Uh, we long to have you here with us in our midst. Um, and uh, today, today we got a pretty heavy thing to talk about and it's going to take us a while to talk through it all. And uh, I'm still battling a little bit of a, a little bit of a head cold. It's not COVID, um, but uh, so so bear with me. And you can be in prayer too that we make it through the message time because I think this is really important. The stuff that we're going to talk about today. Last week we talked at length about trials, tests, and temptations, and we said, "Oh my, those are some pretty intimidating words." Um, two of those actually proved to be a friend to us. And they're the means by which God can assess our faith and the means by which we, which we can develop uh, a more mature, robust, whole, and steadfast faith. And these trials can bring glory to God as we pass them. Unfortunately, we also notice that because of the brokenness in our hearts, that within every trial we face, there's also a temptation, an inner temptation, an inner enticement to sin against God so often it surfaces as well during those times of trials or testing. And so we're tempted to rebel against God. God may bring about or allow us to go through times of trials, but James insists that God is not the author of temptation. The enticement to sin comes from our own evil desires and not from God, and so we need our desires to change. So how do we change what's inside of us? That's our assignment to tackle today because it's precisely what James is going to get at in these verses. Some of what we talk about today will resurface itself again in chapter 4. So you're going to hear me say some of the same stuff again later on in our series, but in chapter 4, we're going to try to get very specific and identify the specific desires that we have in our lives that is causing so much chaos in our worlds, and today we're going to be a little bit more generic, okay? We're going to try to distinguish between that which is good and evil, and then determine to reject that which is evil, because we've actually come to prefer that which is truly good. So today I want to offer you some solid food to chew on, so that your powers of discernment might be trained, and I hope that you will stop preferring your own personal evil but instead long for that which is truly good. That's what the author of Hebrews hinted at in chapter 5, where he said, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So that's what we want to have happen today. So let's read our passage and then ask God's blessing on our teaching time. 
look at what God's word says, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1 of James. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Let's ask, God, add, ask God's blessing. God, this is Your word. I pray that we would believe it, that we would obey it, and that we would trust it for all that it promises us. I pray that there would be solid food for us to chew on today, that our powers of discernment may be um, tuned in to reject that which sometimes comes so natural to us but is really evil, and that we would embrace that which is truly good and perfect and unchanging. And so God, give us your insight into this wonderful passage of Scripture once again, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we looked at this passage of Scripture last week, and we're going to look at it this week, and we're going to look at it next week as well. There's a lot in these verses to unpack. We didn't exhaust all the information from the front half of these verses last week, but hopefully we covered it enough to move on to the second half. And we will primarily focus on just verses 15 through 18 today. Next week we're going to look at all these verses again and talk about how to actually fight our temptations And today we're going to look at these verses and say that there's some things that we need to know and there's some things that we need to feel. What we think and what we feel leads and ends up to that which we do. And the interplay between what we think and what we feel and what we do is really real in our worlds. So I want to talk real briefly about a word on cognition, on our thinking, because our text addresses our thinking today. We live in a culture that elevates cognition. Knowledge is power, is the word on the street. What is meant by that is the more a person knows, the more that person will be able to control the events that take place in their lives. Knowledge is the true and the actual power of a person and not just their physical prowess or the weapons that are at their disposal. The transference or the acquisition of information, seems to be the highest goal in our society. And it's a good goal, and that's why we value education so much. Knowledge is certainly powerful. In fact, there are whole secular systems of therapy that have been developed and that have been demonstrated to be helpful for overcoming some of life's challenges. Just change the way you think. And you'll change the way you feel, and it will change what you do. Your perspective might change, and you might end up feeling better. So just retrain your mind to think differently. And we're thinking, man, that sounds so biblical, right? That sounds like Romans 12 too. 
Paul writes, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. So there it is, right? It's, it clearly says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And yes, we do see that in Romans 12.2. But don't forget that Romans 12.2 comes after Romans 12.1. In Romans 12.1, we see Paul's affectionate appeal to his readers. So now let's talk about affection. We talked about cognition and how important it is, but what about affections? Look at Romans 12.1. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here, Paul appeals to the Romans. He pleads with them. He urges them. The word is parakaleo, which means to come alongside and call out. There is an urgency and an intensity and an intimacy with this word. This isn't just commanding you from afar to do something. This is actually getting right up close by your side, looking you deep in your eyes and begging you to consider what I'm about to say. This is an earnest appeal. And he's going to go way past the minds of the Romans into their emotions by getting them to respond to the mercies of God that have been made available to them even while they were yet still sinners. This isn't just Paul saying, listen close, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. It is, I appeal to you. Brothers, I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm earnest with you. I want to come alongside you and implore you, brothers, my family, my people, by the mercies of God, would you, in view of that, could you present your bodies as a living sacrifice? It was actually within God's power to rightfully punish you, but he didn't. So let's respond to that, shall we, brothers? Do you see the difference? The first is a transfer of information that your brain could process. But the second was an example of a life-altering plea that sought to stir your hearts. There's a major difference between the two, but when they're both employed, it makes a powerful concoction. Think about a coach in a locker room when your team is down at halftime. And the coach goes to the whiteboard and he says, Hey guys, um, it just dawned on me, if we're going to win this game, we need to score more points and we need to keep them from scoring points. Right? True or not true? True, right? Indeed it's true. It's, it's, it's evident that the coach is thinking rightly. But do you think that a simple transfer of information helps the team accomplish their objective? No. More than likely, they understand the, the, the idea of competition and how it works. That is, unless they live in a day and age where everybody gets a ribbon, right? There are winners and losers in competition, I've got to tell you. What do those players need when they're down at halftime? More knowledge? No, they need something that probably stirs their hearts a little bit. They need their hearts stirred, or maybe it's a combination of both. It's like, maybe you need to double-team that guy, right? 
So maybe it's knowledge and the affection put together. So Paul, having done a fantastic job of transferring some amazing theological and doctrinal information for 11 chapters in Romans, now is going to go to the heart of the matter. And what he's going to go for is a matter of their hearts. The proper response to such mercy isn't to brag about the fact that on a quiz you can properly define what mercy means when it's asked of you. Way to go, you know what mercy means. The proper response to mercy being made available to you and actually being poured out on you is an overwhelming sense of gratitude. It's to say, I can't believe that you will actually give me something that I don't deserve, and so I'm grateful. My heart is filled with thankfulness. My emotions have been stirred. They're even stirred up so much right now that I want to ride this high, and the first thing I want to do because of my affections being so high is that I want to renew my mind. It's not that knowledge or the ability to think is unimportant. Obviously it is. It's part of the human experience. But it does seem to be that the tipping point for human action isn't cognition, but it's affection. It's something that you fall in love with that compels you to do something. I'm pretty sure that Isaiah knew that God was holy. But when he actually experienced the holiness of God, he was affected by it. His demeanor was influenced and he was impacted by the appearance and the experience of God, not just so that he had knowledge of him, but he was overwhelmed. And then it says that he was undone and that led him to do what? Say, here I am, send me. Cognition and affections when focused on the right thing, when they are in sync with one another, will make hell tremble. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 workers out in the land and equipped them with a message to proclaim and with power that demonstrated the kingdom of God was actually in their midst. And the 72 come back from their assignment and they say this, the 72 returned with joy their affections, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They knew something, and they felt something, and they did something, and they accomplished the mission, and they rejoiced, and so did Jesus, because Jesus says, look, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like, he's like, I can't, this is amazing, way to go, guys. And in our passage today, We have both knowledge and affections being addressed in this passage. Now, our goal isn't to make hell tremble. Our goal is to please and bring glory to God, but making hell tremble is a pretty good side benefit too, I think. So as we study our passage, I think that there are things that we need to know, and there's things that we need to feel, And next week when we get together, we'll talk about what do we do with all this knowledge and our affections. And so now the sermon starts. That was the introduction. (laughs) No! Talk about feeling something. Here we go. We we have to combine these both. We have to. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck in the same trap over and over again. 
So the first point of the sermon is this. We need to know that the descent into depravity is a slippery slope drenched with dish soap. I tried to make it a vivid picture for you. The descent into depravity is a slippery slope drenched in dish soap. Look at what James says in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Look how inevitable this is. What a powerful analogy that James introduces here and one that he'll actually go back to in verse 21 of this chapter. This is what he says. It's really the first century version of mama and daddy kissing in a tree. Remember that one? K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the Baby in the baby carriage. This is the first century version of that. According to this riddle, right? It's amazing. Now, I want to say that our modern world tells us, right, that it doesn't have to be the order of things according to ancient riddle. It attempts to switch out the participants making out in the tree. But that's not the way that God designed it, right? The old riddle had it right. According to the riddle, a man and a woman are in love They commit themselves to each other in holy matrimony because of that love, and they eventually produce offspring sourced from that love and fulfill God's plan and agenda for spreading His image across the globe. This is the analogy that James is going to tap into and teach from. He had just said that God doesn't tempt us, but we are tempted by our own desires that are within us. Those desires act like a seed that has the potential to become implanted, nourished, birthed, and then fully grown. And if we're talking about a baby being conceived and birthed and eventually celebrated at a graduation ceremony and launched out into the world, this is a joyous occasion. But if we're talking about a sinful desire, it's the exact opposite experience. You have just initiated a series of seriously sad, sorrowful experiences that will end in death. Instead of congratulations, it's a boy or a girl, in regard to sin, it's saying, congratulations, you ruined your life. The longer you linger on a deceitful desire... James is going to say the easier it will be to cave into it. The longer you linger, the louder your invitation becomes as you ask it to devastate your life when it's fully grown. Your reputation trashed. Your life in shambles. The adoring eyes of your children averted from you and focused on someone more admirable all because you didn't kill that desire when you had the chance. That's what James is going to say. It's a slippery slope, drenched in dish soap. So here's a question. Is it a sin to be tempted? No. 
We live in a world that's filled with seductions. In fact, our entire experience with the world because of our total depravity is one big massive opportunity to rebel against God. But the opportunity to rebel is not the same thing as actually rebelling. Now listen, some of you really, really need to hear what I'm about to say because you are really, really sensitive about these matters because either you have sinned greatly in the past and the accuser of the brethren likes to remind you of your failure or you may just be really, really desiring to live a life pleasing to God and you're tired of experiencing the same temptations over and over again because you think that your experience with the same temptations over and over again tells you that you're somehow out of step with God. Listen to me, both types of people. I do believe that over time, the frequency and the power of temptation might wane as you make progress in your sanctification. But temptation will always be a part of our experience as it was for Jesus himself. Jesus was tempted by the devil in the desert to start his earthly ministry. And when Jesus refused to take the baited hook of the devil, we read these unfortunate words from the pen of Luke. He says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him from him until an opportune time. So that tells me, Jesus, the most whole, most complete, most mature human ever, had opportune times of temptation. An opportune time is a moment of vulnerability. A time when we are more likely to yield to a temptation. So think with me. Can you think of an opportune time for Jesus to give in to a natural desire that he had for maybe self-preservation instead of going along with his father's plan to lead him like a lamb to the slaughter? When was that? Well, it was on the night that he was betrayed. That was the last night of Jesus' life on earth. So that tells me from the first moments of his public ministry to the last moments of his ministry and probably everywhere in between, he was acquainted with opportune times that were full of temptations, but he never once indulged. And so the author of Hebrews says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus will run to you and help you in the midst of your temptations. So, oh, dear brother and sister, Christian, hear this. You will face temptations. It's inevitable. But your Christian maturity is not measured by the infrequency of your temptations, but by the infrequency of you giving in to them. Now this is where it gets tricky 
because there's an accuser of the brethren that likes to say different things, wrong things to us. I used to look at this passage of Scripture at the descent and the slippery slope and all that stuff and think, man, I used to look at this passage of Scripture in the midst of a time of temptation and think something like this. Man, the desire is already conceived. And so I already, I've started this inevitable chain reaction, like pursing the first domino over. And so eventually this thing is going to be birthed and then fully grown. So why not just indulge in the desire right now and get it over with? And sometimes I would actually believe that and I would actually act on it. Can you believe that? Like yours truly, believing something so ridiculous. Well, whose voice does that sound like? Whose voice does this sound like? Why don't you just go ahead and sin and get it over with and out of your system? Get on with the rest of your day. Just get that burden to sin off your chest by indulging instead of resisting it. Aren't you tired of fighting it? Why don't you kick back for a second, take a load off. You've been going hard all day. It's just a little thing. No one will know. No one has to know. The next few moments aren't anyone else's concern. That's one voice that you can hear in the midst of temptation. And it might even be a familiar voice, but it's not the voice of your Savior. That is the voice of one who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The one who came so that you might have life and have it to the fullest, sings quite a different tune because Jesus shows up in the midst of your temptation and says, unless you repent, you will perish. So turn around and come to me and find rest for your soul. You know what I need in the midst of a war taking place within myself? is to find rest for my soul. And that's why Jesus says that's why He will offer that to me. My adversary is actually offering me the exact opposite. If I go His route, I will only be tormented all the more as my tired-from-fighting body will have heaps of guilt and shame dumped on me. So although you and I hate being there, We end up there so often because the descent into depravity is a slippery slope drenched in dish soap. You and I need to intellectually acknowledge this so that you're not deceived in allowing that desire to dwell past the moment of conception. Listen carefully. This is the only time you'll ever hear me say this phrase in a positive way. My body, my choice. I am going to kill these ungodly desires within me the moment I become aware of their existence because Romans 6.11 says this, also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. I need to recognize that if I don't behead this desire now, it will be brought to full term and birth and bring about destruction in my life. You've heard me say this acronym before. Sin is always sad. What I mean by that is sin always destroys. If you think you found some loophole in the universe where you're not going to reap burning coals on your lap and not be burned, you haven't. You've been deceived. Sin 
always destroys. So we must destroy it. And now that we know that the descent into depravity is a slippery slope drenched in dish soap, we won't be deceived into thinking that we can mess around at the top of the slide. And that's what James says next when he says, don't be deceived. Verse 16, he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Look at this urgent plea. He tells them something true in verse 15, but now he's going to engage their affections by, by appealing to his relate. It's kind of like what we hear from Paul to the Romans in chapter 12. James is going to appeal to his connective nature with his readers. He's sharing some very important news with the people that he considers very important. These are his kinsmen. This is family talk here. Verses 13 through 15 is the reality for family members. And so now he's going to challenge all of us at the family meeting to not be deceived. Think differently about all this stuff. Don't be tricked into thinking that you can get away with all this stuff and live. Don't be conned into thinking that you can get away with indulging in these dark desires. Don't be hoodwinked into thinking that God is somehow holding out on you for not allowing you to do that which comes natural to you. James is going to appeal to their intellect and their affections. He doesn't want his readers to be intellectually deceived, so he's going to appeal to them emotionally. James is going to now try to help his readers, you and I, become more enraptured with something that is truly good and perfect. Once again, the interplay between cognition and emotion needs to bubble up and spill over into action. We actually see this in the garden. If you want to, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It's a, it's a primary passage of Scripture that we just need to be familiar with because it answers the question, why do we do what we do? In Genesis 3, 6, it'll be on the screen as well, but I'd love for you to have it marked in your Bible. We get this account. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The problem with Eve wasn't a lack of information. There was a lack of affection for the right thing. Look at this language. It's all emotive language. Good, delight, desire. These are words that have power in them. These are words that come with legs. They move you to action because people do that which they assess as good, delightful, and desirable. If it hits on the good, delightful, and desirable categories, why not go for it, right? The consequential action for Eve taking and eating and sharing the fruit was because she determined it good, delightful, and desirable. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with the fruit other than the fact that it was forbidden. I'm sure it looked good. I'm sure it was a delight. I'm sure the taste was desirable, but it was forbidden. They took God's place. 
They played God. They looked at the situation and they came to the reasoned conclusion that it would be better or more delightful and more desirable if they lived by their own rules. So crunch. They were more excited about that than being in a right relationship with their creator who would relate with them in a very personal way, by the way, by walking in the garden with them. They were deceived and so their thinking was messed up And so were their feelings because they desired the wrong thing. They desired fruit over pleasing what God has said. They preferred something forbidden over that which was truly good and perfect and unchanging. And that's what James is going to try to point to next in the text in verse 17. And we're going to ask the question, what is really good? If humans always do that which is good, desirable, and delightful to them, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is truly good? We need to have our minds affected by that. And that's what James says in verse 17. Look, every, how many? Every. That means they only come from one source and they all come from him. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Look at how desirable God is depicted to be in this verse. When you look at this verse, in its context, it's clear that James wants you to know that God doesn't tempt us. That would be bad. Rather, He's the one who gives good gifts and perfect gifts to us And that reality will never change because He will never change. He will constantly extend to you that which is good. And He will constantly extend to you that which is perfect. James is telling us that we can trust Him always to supply every good thing to us, especially in our time of need. We can trust Him to provide a perfect gift even during times of temptation. And so we remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. No temptation has somehow overtaken you. That is not common to man. That's what what it's like to be a human, to live in a state of constant temptation. All these opportune times for us to rebel against God. But God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, what's that faithful God doing? He's providing the way of escape that you may be able to endure at that opportune time of temptation. A lot more on this next week. Do you know it's really good? Listen, when you're in the midst of being dragged away and enticed and rapidly descending into the depths of your own personal depravity at lightning speed, you know it's good? An eject button. You can abort the mission and not give in to the temptation that will bring about a massive destruction in your life. And God says, I will always provide that for you. I will never not be there. He's reliable. He's dependable. He doesn't dance around like the shifting shadows on the landscape as the sun parades across the sky. The spotlight of God's countenance is always and ever on you, even in the midst of your temptation. And he says, look, I'll make myself available to you at all times. That is good. Have you ever been on a boat when the waves 
We're really tossing you about, or maybe you just, I, I don't have my sea legs, and I don't like even be on any boat, right? Do you know what feels good? Is when you step out on solid ground. Or have you ever ridden a carnival ride that looked cool, but when you got on it, you realized it wasn't as cool as it looked? And you just couldn't wait to get off this crazy thing and survive? The moment you step on solid ground feels what? Perfect. The crazy motion has ceased. I might still feel it in my bones, but it, at least it's, my reality has changed. It's ceased, and I'm on a firm place that won't shift. We are in need of something that is sure and steady and fixed and firm. We need to be anchored to something that is incapable of being removed. We need to find ourselves connected to something bigger than ourselves or our tempting circumstances or our own natural tendencies to want the wrong thing. We need something that doesn't shift with the passing of time. Well, what could that be? And how do we connect ourselves to it? Well, the it isn't an it. It is a he. And he is the dependable faithful God who gives good and perfect gifts. And speaking of gifts, if you feel like somehow God has held out on you, the preeminent good gift that he has given to us is found in verse 18. What is the preeminent good gift that was given? I hope this is life altering for you. Pay attention to the last like three minutes of this message because James is going to point to the good and perfect gift that he has given to each and every one of you if you know him as Savior. That means if you've repented and you've listened to his voice and turned from your sin because James says this, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Wow. People, listen, I'm telling you, this verse could change your life. Listen to this. Instead of being at the top of a slippery slope drenched in dishope that's going to lead to your destruction and depravity, instead of you and your evil desires bringing about your death and destruction, God has brought about your regeneration according to his own will, by his authoritative voice, like when he said to the dead body of his friend Lazarus, who had been rotting away for four days in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. The grave clothes unbound him, and he stepped out a new man. And that was, was given to Lazarus. That's what has been given to us. He has rebirthed us. What a good and perfect gift. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can actually walk in newness of life. Why? Because God loved the world. That so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In your moment of temptation, you might wonder, where's the good and perfect gift now? Where's it at? I don't see it. Well, if you are in Christ, it's in you. 
Do you know what James says you are? You're a first fruit. What does that mean? That means the sacrifice of Jesus began the redemption and renewal of every part of the fallen creation. And you know what he's doing? He's starting it with you. You are not just at the mercy of your former manner of life. You are a first fruit. You are born again. Do you not know that God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are that temple So listen to the last paragraph. You are much stronger than the devil says you are. And you are much wiser than you think you are. So don't allow yourself to be deceived. Rather, intellectually acknowledge that you are a new creation that doesn't have to give into the old ways. Look at what you've been given and what's been given to you, and be affectionately grateful for your first fruit status, and then combine what you know with what you feel, and let that concoction become a catalyst to carry you to be more conformed to the image of Christ as you execute a death blow to the sinful cravings that you still may have. Oh God, we are just pleased with these verses and God, we, we, we don't have in it of ourselves. It only comes to us through the gospel of Christ. And so, Lord, as we sing this last worship song and as the worship team comes forward to lead us in this truth-filled song, God, I pray that we would be reminded that every good and perfect gift has been given to us and your spirit indwells us and we don't have to take the ride, the slippery slope, slide down into our depravity. We can actually say no to that ungodliness. And it's only found in Jesus Christ. God, we are much stronger than the devil says we are. We are much wiser than we think we are. We trust in you and our first fruit status as you begin the process of recreating and redeeming the entire creation, starting with us, your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want the worship team to come forward and the rest of us stand as we close our song by singing a song we introduced last week. Christ our hope in life and death.